From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. So here we are. Can you believe this? It's our 100th episode. And I've been thinking a lot lately about what that means, how far we've come from the first days of No Limits. And you have to indulge me for a minute because I keep coming back to this feeling of deep gratitude to all of you listening right now. Honestly, the words of encouragement you have sent me along the way, your emails, your tweets, your reviews, you know who you are. I have friends out there who have been so kind throughout all of this. And when we created this podcast, I really wanted to create something that would help all of us learn, Um, but I didn't realize or I didn't think about the fact that you would help me learn, that you would take the time to reach out, to share your stories, and I can't tell you how much I look forward to that every week, to hearing from you, so thank you. You have kept us going. You guide us towards what's important. You have helped us grow. I deeply appreciate it everyone out there who's listening right now. I also want to thank our incredible guests, those who have enlightened me in all of these conversations. I walk into interviews feeling sometimes unsure. I don't know where the conversation's going to go. And every single time I walk out feeling nourished. I keep coming back to that word because that's how I feel. And to our entrepreneurs of the week, all of you who have been submitting, thank you so much for reminding us, for reminding the entire community of what's possible, for taking that leap and sharing those stories. And finally, to my team, my amazing team, the core team, the women who work on this week after week around the clock to put the podcast together, Taylor, Annie, Michelle, this would never be possible without you. So thank you so much. Before I get any more sentimental, to our 100th episode, we go. So we went back and listened, listened again, and we want to share with you some of the favorite moments throughout the last year and a half. Many of these conversations have framed how we think about work and life, and I hope they will do the same thing for you. And I want to start with this clip from our very first episode on January 10th, 2017. Ariana Huffington set the stage for this crazy journey. When you think about your past, growing up in Greece, did any of this cross your mind at that time? Did you envision any of this? No, of course not. And that's really what is amazing about life, though, how um, it takes us in such unexpected directions. And very often we think we make everything happen in our life. But really, when you look back, so many things are not things we make happen, but opportunities that we are open to. So I have a little saying um, by my bed that says life is a dance between making it happen and letting it happen. And I love that because it makes you exhale and realize that not everything is on your shoulders. We've heard so many women here talk about the unexpected, how real life is so different from the highlight reel on Instagram and the importance of embracing the twists and turns along the way as opportunities to learn. Like Issa Rae, who was encouraged to take the traditional route after her second web series was a flop. 
I could have given up after that second web series because I was frustrated. And I spent a lot of time like, these guys are good. Why is nobody watching this? We're putting quality work into it. And it wasn't until, you know, on a whim, I was like, well, let me just try this other series and I'll put myself in it, that it caught on. It was really the most personal thing to me. And that's what, you know, appealed to people. What kept you going? I really, really wanted to do this. I really wanted to be a writer. I really wanted to be, you know, in the entertainment industry. I felt like, you know, I was good at it and I had ideas and I loved it. I couldn't see myself doing anything else. I just couldn't picture my life (laughs) and happily living my life not doing what I love and not having, like, actively pursued what I love. People will say this all the time, really successful people. It's the moment that you stop listening to what other people outside are saying, well, you should be this way or you should do it this way because this is the way that's hot right now or selling right now. And instead you're like, no, I'm going to look at it differently. I'm going to look at it from the standpoint of what is unique about me? What is my voice? And I'm going to 100% own that and do that and speak to that community of other people who feel that voice too. Absolutely. And I think for a while I was doing that. I was like, you know, what's hot right now? What do people want to see? What do I feel like I can write as opposed to what do I want to see? And what do what is it about me that makes me special? What is it about my voice that makes me very specific and very unique? And once I tapped into that, things started changing rapidly. And I think that's, you know, I always say that your individuality is such a currency because it makes Mm -hmm. you, you know, rich. It makes you you. And in all of my work now, I just try to tap into everything that makes me me. And ultimately, it was that next YouTube series, Awkward Black Girl, which paved the way for Issa Rae to create, co-write, and star in the HBO series Insecure. And speaking of Insecure, a lot of guests have talked about overcoming that fear and finding their voice, and I absolutely loved Refinery29 Chief Content Officer Amy Emmerich's explanation of how she did it. I think the toughest lesson is that you just have to climb the ladder. And in order to climb that ladder, you have to look a certain way, talk a certain way. Um, So I think realizing that it was my own true voice that helped me get ahead. But I probably didn't have the confidence in that until I was 35, 36. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I tried to fit in with the way they wanted me to look. This is what an executive looks like. These are the kind of shoes you wear and the suits you should wear, um, the color for your skin tone, how your hair should be worn, how you present yourself. Um, and the more I tried to fit in, the more uncomfortable I was, the more frustrated I would become. Um, my voice was different and I was holding it back so that I could get ahead with this group, whatever group it was, whatever network I was working in. Um, and it wasn't until I was kind of fed up, I think my inside voice knew it's fed up and it wanted to come out. When were you fed up? Um, When I was working at Travel Channel and I was doing a long commute and there was a lot of changes happening at that network. I'm going to just start doing whatever I feel like. (laughs) 
I called it office space. If you remember in that movie, he just you decides. slammed a computer in a oh, hayfield. I, I literally was saying anything I wanted. Um, uh, I literally would say what would, it, and then my colleague at the time. What would office space do? Yes, yes. And then he started saying what would Emmerich do? Because I just started not caring, thinking I'm going to be myself and hopefully they'll get me fired and I can go back to New York. And it, the opposite happened. People started waking up to talents that I had and the strength I would show and the confidence. And my, I was like, wait a minute, what's happening here? This is the opposite effect. But this is a great one. How, how do I use this? How do I stay strong and confident and not you know, lose this? Don't lose it, Emmerich. We heart you. Earlier this year, we traveled to the Bay Area and talked to Ann Wojcicki, the CEO and co-founder of 23andMe. And one of the things that really caught my attention in this conversation is her repeated emphasis on time. The fact that all success, no matter how it appears on the surface, takes so much of it. What's the toughest lesson for you along the way? You know, I think in some ways what I one of the main things I learned, like, is it, throughout this company, um, success is about determination. There's very few cases where there's overnight success. And, um, you know, there's a lot of times where people in the company would be like, oh, we have to make, you know, that killer product, that killer product, that killer product. And then there's at one point where I was like, you guys, we have it. Um, <laughs> um, and I think that's part of it is like everyone um, knowing just like you work, like we've been working on, on you know, all of our approvals. Like Braca for me was one, like we've worked on this for years. Um so sometimes like it just takes a lot of work to get something done. And it's one thing I advise to entrepreneurs too is like you have to stick with it. Success comes from actually like really sticking with it. And, um, you know, one thing I love is that we have a big education initiative. Like one of our mantras is anyone can be a scientist. And, you know, we say these things like we say it all the time. I have no idea if there's an impact. But having done this now for 10, 12 years, um, I love I see kids in PhD programs who are like, because of you, I saw you on, you know, on a channel or on a radio or something because of you, like, I believed I could do it. And now I'm in a PhD program at MIT. Like, I, like seeing the impact of what you do is, um, is amazing. It's so rewarding. But you only get that when you really stick with it. And I always advise like, if people are passionate about something, you need a decade to see your impact. And so like now I can see the impact of like what we have done and that's even that much more motivating, but like it really is important to, to stick through it. So I think that's one of the things that's um, been the most important for me to learn. And in Silicon Valley, where everyone wants to like, you know, have the next WhatsApp program of 17 people, $5 billion, you know, like the reality for the most of us, we actually have to work hard. Another big theme here at No Limits is how the past sets the stage for the future. And the team liked that fashion designer Rebecca Minkoff realized that the thing she hated most as a kid became her greatest strength as an entrepreneur. I think the defining moment is while I was raised with a work ethic that I resented for the majority of my life, I think always having to work for what I wanted gave me a sort of a fearlessness that when I moved here to work for a designer and had dreams of starting my own company, it didn't occur to me to be scared that I had nowhere to live or uh, a, a low-paying job that maybe would not even pay the rent. And and when I did decide to start my own company, that normal like, oh gosh, I can't do this, this is too risky, Didn't I didn't have those normal feelings because my whole life my mom and dad had said, if you want this, how are you going to earn it? And so I thought... You know, I thought very analytically about, okay, I have to make this work, and, and what are the steps? So I think that's one key defining moment and one thing I like to talk about with other 
women interested in starting their careers is you have to be a little fearless in order to really take those leaps and change your life. Um, and I think the other key thing is, is I, I was very quick to know uh, who could help me and get a girl network of women who could help me and support me and say, you know what, I know this person I can introduce you. So, you know, treating my business cards at the time like currency. So every night I'd get home and count my business cards, who are my contacts that I made. And I still am sort of like that today. If I get a business card, I never throw it away. Um, because you never know when you might need to make a connection with someone. Ever since that conversation, I've never looked at a business card the same way. And ever since this next conversation with Kate Hudson, I've thought differently about falling short. Here she talks about a conversation with her dad, Kurt Russell, after she didn't win the Oscar for her role in Almost Famous. In that moment, did it start to feel like Hollywood Here's or celebrity? When you grow up in something, it's just what you know. It doesn't feel weird to you. It just feels like your life, right? So whereas it might feel weird for me to like grow up with, you know, scholarly professor intellectuals, like, wow, what's that? That must have been really interesting and amazing. And they're like, well, it's my parents, you know. Um, that's basically how I felt about our life. And also my parents aren't like real – fans of the whole smoke and mirrors thing it's just not who they are at all and so it sort of lends to a different perspective of how other people see hollywood as to how we as a family kind of saw it the success of almost famous you know at the at the same time i was madly in love and and looking at my life and excited about my future in the, this new relationship and so there was this great balance of like grounded family and and sort of all the other things and the noise around it was just this great experience. But it, to me, it just sort of meant like, oh, great, I'm, I'm going to have a I, I can have a real career, you know, because I, I do love it. As a matter of fact, that's something Kurt said to me at the Oscars. Um, congratulations. After I lost. Congratulations. You can now go have your career. And I was like, oh, that's such a great thing to say because it's just starting. And, and um, I was 21. So it was kind of amazing to have that so young. And then just start working and having that kind of demand at a young age is, you know, just incredible. And I just wanted to always just work really hard and continue to enjoy the process instead of all the stuff that goes with it. You know, it's like if everybody took it away, every aspect of your fame, would you still want to be an actor? The answer is absolutely. So it's like at that moment in my life, again, it was sort of this like, great flashy time but it was also a time for me to start the work which was great so many times in life we're asked to compromise to do things the way our boss wants them done or the way that they've always been done many guests have talked about challenging convention but i chose this clip with wendy williams because she makes the case for playing the long game what would six-year-old wendy say about her life now what would be the biggest surprise i made it I mean, look, a lot of people's version of making it is a lot grander or maybe simpler. But for me, wow, you lost the weight. Your teeth are no longer crooked. You know, you turn the world on with your like you made it on your own terms. You, you know, I mean, you bend a bit to be a daytime sweetheart. But after all these years on TV, I can only be who I am. I'm very comfortable out on the floor. And that's what I would tell my young son, uh, younger self. Like, wow, hang on. This is a dream. It's still a dream. 
Talk about the bending part. Because I, I look at somebody like you, I cannot even fathom that anywhere in your life you would bend oh, to police. the will of someone else. Oh, please. Some of those costumes I wear out there on the floor these days were not so permissible in my season one or my six-week sneak peek while, because, you know, I was popular here in New York. You know, I've had a over a 30-year broadcast career, and I understood that. The popularity of me being like a juggernaut here in New York and on the radio is the reason that I was given the opportunity for the six-week sneak peek. I was also a syndicated personality, mildly, you know, uh, but you just can't win. You can't win the space by only appealing to black people. And that's that's what my original base was. That's I'm a black woman. I did urban radio and whatnot. And and before you knew it, um, I had some, uh, you know, a lot of white listeners and so on and so forth. And but when you do uh, daytime talk, which is different than nighttime, you know, I have to keep saying daytime talk. How is it? Explain how it's different. in your uh, head. How would you approach the two differently? On nighttime, I could tell you exactly how I feel right now. <laughs> On daytime, when you're trying to win, you know, um, you know that nice household who doesn't exactly know a bunch of people of color, but you want her vote, and she has her coffee in the morning. When you come on at 10, you want her vote. So I can't give it to her good, not right away. I got to pull her in gently. Pull her in gently. <laughs> you know, pull down my skirt. Cover up the cleavage. Maybe don't give it to her good right away. And almost 10 years later, she gets who I am. Mm -hmm. She's loving it. And she's watching. And maybe I pulled something out of her personality. There's always this sort of push and pull, this tug of war between be 100% true to yourself Mm -hmm. versus there are certain Roles yep. that you have to play on some level to gain people's trust, and you're speaking to that. And yep. it's it's a, actually it's a really complex thing, I think, because a lot of women um, have talked here on No Limits about the idea that they realized they were in the wrong place when a boss told them you have to behave this way, and this way was totally counter to who they were. Yeah. But your calculus along the way was, in order for me to get to this place where I desperately want to be, I have to sort of let people in, like a little by little. Play a into little who- role, pull everyone just little at a time until you can finally, oh God, Wendy, oh, <laughs> you made it. If there's one thing that unites every single guest on No Limits, it is the number of times they've heard the word no. Jessica Alba is the CEO and founder of The Honest Company. She's also a successful actor, and she had some great advice on responding to no. What would your 10-year-old self think if we went back and said, by the way, she's going to co-found a multi-billion dollar company. She's going to appear in all of these films. She's going to have a great family. Dope. (laughs) (laughs) Would she have been surprised or would she have been, were you on a mission? Um... I I mean, I, I come from such a modest background and working class background and such a different background. This would have been in a way beyond my wildest dreams as a kid, but I did dream it. And, um, and I think you have to have the vision of what's possible in order for it to come true. So there was something in, in me that really felt like anything could be possible. I think that's so true. You have to know what's possible. And this is why we do No Limits. This is why I want to have these conversations because careers like yours, for outsiders looking in, it's kind of like, wait, how would I even begin? What What's even the first step? 
I think just not really caring about what other people think and staying on your own path and being authentic to, to what you want out of life and just sticking to that, persevering, I guess, and um, not taking no for an answer. Not taking no for an answer, which, by the way, I'm sure as an actor, as well as in business, we hear <laughs> that hear word a lot. All the, you hear all the no's every day. <laughs> Even when you're successful, they still manage to tear you down in entertainment. It's, very, it's a very strange business. How do you turn the no into a yes? Um, I think you have to walk in and not necessarily care so much about getting um, validation from outsiders. And um, you really have to be on your own journey and you have to be fulfilled as a person. And I think things will just sort of open up um, if, if your heart's in the right place and if your head's in the right place. As any of our frequent No Limits listeners knows, I love practical advice. Tell me something I can do and apply in my own life, and I'm very excited. Well, Ursula Burns is the first African-American woman to lead an S&P 500 company. She was the CEO and chairman of Xerox up until last year. And in this next clip, she walks us through the steps to becoming CEO. In a world where there's just 24 women in this role at Fortune 500 companies, it's an important listen. You worked your way up inside of Xerox. You literally climbed the ranks of Xerox, get named CEO and eventually chairman and CEO. And when I look at um, other women in the workforce, there's sort of this acknowledgement that there is, while there are many, many ways to get to CEO, there is this kind of path and there are certain jobs that you must take. And there are other jobs that if you're on that path, you're not necessarily going to get to CEO. Correct. Did you did somebody lay that out for you? No, no. But it was that was something that was by the time I got uh, close enough to realize that. So not my first job, my second job, my third job. But, you know, after about nine to 10 years in the company, it was clear that if you stayed in this path, what are some could be uh, can you be specific? Oh, very here? very specific. Yeah, if you stayed in HR, the chances of you running the company are nearly zero. If you went to if you stayed in marketing, pure marketing, the chances of you running the company are, are very difficult. If you stayed in pure research, so th- if you stayed in IT, there are many outstanding jobs. Being the head of HR, the CHR, the Chief Human Resource Officer, great, great, great job. They, I don't believe that most human resource executives are aspiring to be the the CEO of the company. They're aspiring to be the CHRO. Finance is another one. They're not aspiring to be the – they want to be the CFO. So it's not – the fact that there's not a path from many jobs to that job doesn't make – is expected. It doesn't make any of those jobs not good, not good or not desirable. Not desirable. But it's it, just that women are – women overpopulate in certain areas. They They major in certain areas. HR is one. Um, marketing and communications is another one. Um, we had a time when we had some great IT executives that were women. but there are, And it's generally the softer side. And we, there was a huge amount of time when I was growing up. So I'm in work now. And, and so I'm growing up in the work environment where, you know, um, all of the women would say, but, you know, there's no women in leadership. And you look at all of the women, they were in HR, literally HR and marketing. And the, the response is, yeah, very rarely does a person who's in HR get the chops experience, um, credibility, 
to actually cross over and run the company because they you got to be able to do that and HR and understand the operations and out there you have to kind of know something about the value chain and supply chain. There's a lot of other things you have to know. And it's easy to learn those things if you're in engineering or if you're in sales or general management somehow. So yeah, otherwise you can't run the company until you get some broader set of experiences. So get that experience if your eye is on the CEO role. Stay tuned for more No Limits after a quick word from our sponsor. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Doubt. We all know it. We've all dealt with it. And in this conversation with entrepreneur and fashion mogul Tori Birch, she talks about how she deals with it when it sets in. My dad used to say that, know what you don't know. (laughs) Completely. And and also be a lifelong learner. I think that when I hire people at at our company, I want to see that intellectual curiosity. And and to never – I said to my team yesterday, I want the word habit to be erased from our vocabulary. Especially in this day and age, you cannot do things the same day after day. Like we've seen through disruption, through new technology, how bad that way of thinking is. Well, you won't be relevant and your company won't exist. So you have to be very agile. And, and agility is something that we strive for every day. That said, we don't want to lose who we are. So we have to be a, an uh, always evolved version of who we are. I mean, I wish I could give you a list of do's and don'ts, but there isn't that list. And I think it's, it, it's personal. Um, there's so many times you're doubting. I remember my mom saying, you're Tori Robinson growing up. You can do anything. And, you know, the thing is, you have to believe in what you're doing. And, and if you – I felt that I was missing something in the market, and that was beautifully made clothing that didn't cost a fortune. And there was either the gap or designer. And mm-hmm. there was, so we, we were lucky. We hit a white space in the market. But things are – Things are tough now, and it's a saturated market in all fields. So you have to really be adding value to something and and think differently. And 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 then you have to be a great great seller of your vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to know your vision to sell your vision to, and have you that do. north star and be focused. And by the way, even Olympians like Ali Raisman deal with that insecurity. When I first started to come back, the full year of training in two thousand and. It was, I think, 2013, um, and it might actually might have been 2014. I was like, I, I loved it. I felt like a little kid back in the gym. And then when the year of 2015, I was just like, I didn't like it because I was having such a hard time. I was struggling, and I think every um, struggle, you know, can lead into greatness if you let it. And so I think that you have to struggle in order to be successful. But I just kept telling myself, and I, I kept thinking, you know, I had such a rough year. I was really doubting myself. I didn't have a good world championships it was the worst competition I'd ever had in my whole entire career and so I said I'm not struggling just for no reason like this has to be for some reason so I said instead of crying into my pillow and being upset I'm going to change my mindset stop doubting myself stop feeling so insecure I'm here for a reason I'm going to stop putting so much pressure on myself and I just said for 2016 I'm going to go into it with the mindset that I am going to be up on that podium again and I'm finally going to get my all-around medal and I had to have that bad competition in order to kind of wake myself up and to think I'm being way too hard on myself. And what was it inside of you that came around to that idea? I mean was it was it your parents was it a coach? 
Yeah, I think my mom said, I don't care what happens. I just, like, you have a, about a year left. You've got to enjoy it. My mom said, she's like, I told you, you have to, you're just, you guys are just pushing too much. You're obsessing over winning. Let's just get healthy, stop pushing myself so much, be a little bit more confident, enjoy it. And then I kind of, everything sort of worked out in the time I got to the Olympics. I just said, I'm here for a reason. I'm going to enjoy it. And I know that I'm one of the best in the world. I'm here with my teammates who are the best in the world. And together, um, we're just going to show America, you know, everyone's been so supportive. Everyone's watching us back home. So we have to like feel that and enjoy that while we're competing. Watching it back home, it was incredible to see you you competing. (laughs) And Simone, I mean, what an incredible group of women. It made me very proud. It made me very excited to see all of you rising to the occasion. Um, And I think it's a great lesson also that you and your mom learned along the way that your mom helped impart because, you know, getting happy, taking that step back, clearing your head, even when you're incredibly successful like yourself, is incredibly important well it's important too I mean even though I was successful at the Olympics it's not like there are so many times where I feel like I doubt myself or I'm having a hard time people tune in you know once every four years and they see us smiling and happy but they don't see all the times where we're doubting ourselves and all the moments that build up you know you have to doubt yourself you have to feel insecure in order to feel confident because you kind of you have to sometimes get to that low point where you have to wake yourself up and say, okay, I'm, I'm better than this. I have to, you know, you can only help yourself. This next clip is with my friend and colleague, Robin Roberts. Before gracing your TVs every morning on GMA, Robin was working for ESPN. But to get there and to eventually get to ABC News, she had to overcome a fear and leave her comfort zone. Proximity is power. Yep. And once you get your foot in that door, that's that's the key. You weren't mm-hmm. necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, I need to work at Good Morning America. It was ESPN was the dream. Right. And yet you never really know. Well, don't you find with all with the number of people that you talk in business that you kind of have an idea mm-hmm. of what it is that you want to do or the service that you want to provide and all that. And then things things happen but you have to again that's why i say proximity you got to you have to be at least in the position mm-hmm. this is how i looked in, through playing i learned so much through playing sports we would play a team that on paper should just they they were, they were supposed to kill us and our coach would say just stay close to them just you know keep the score as close as you can because in the end you never know you get that that break if you go into that game thinking okay they're going to they're going to kill us and you don't even try when you had those breaks, they weren't going to mean anything because you're so far behind. So just stay in the game. Just stay mm-hmm. in the game and just hope for um, some kind of uh, a break or of some sort. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've always looked at um, my career. It's like I've done a lot of the work, um, but I've got to have some breaks along the way. And if I go ahead and position myself for that... And being here at ABC and doing Wide World of Sports that turned into to GMA and everything uh, uh, else, um, I never really, like I said, I never, I never really thought of of that. Um, Billie Jean King is a very dear friend, and I remember when I started at, at GMA doing the, the news anchor job in 2002. I was still anchoring at ESPN. I was not going to give up my day job because yeah. I still didn't realize, I didn't know if this was going to work out. And then when I w- was af- offered to be the anchor with Charlie 
Gibson and Diane Sawyer, little old Robin Roberts was going to be the third anchor. I remember <laughs> the folks at ABC said, will you now leave ESPN? <laughs> now will you leave us? And I asked Billie Jean King. Hmm. And I thought that she would say, you know, no, no, you know, stay, stay mm-hmm. in sports. And she was like, of course, why would you not? And then, Rebecca, it was the first time I had to look deep within myself and say, I'm afraid. Mm. I don't want to venture outside of my comfort zone. And it's one thing to be afraid. It's another thing to feel that you can't do it. Mm -hmm. I never felt I couldn't do the job. I just was afraid to do it. And What were you most afraid of? I was most afraid of people saying or people feeling, why, Charlie, Diane, what, what? I had worked so hard in sports. I had worked so hard to get that position at ESPN, and I'd earned that right. Mm -hmm. And I was just so fearful that people would not take me seriously. Um, But I know that because of my sports background and being a woman in sports, the margin of error (laughs) was not existent. (laughs) So um, I I think the nervousness was because it was outside of my comfort zone in that sports I know cold, even to this day. I mean, I just know everything about it. I love it. I eat it. I breathe it. And it wasn't that way at the time in news. I had a a, a knowledge of what was going on in the world, but it wasn't a passion of Mm -hmm. mine. It was an interest, but not a passion. And so I, I was a little bit insecure in that regard. But more, more than anything else, this is what I love and it's so important for people to understand. We're all afraid. All of us are afraid. And the courage is to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not that the fear ever leaves. It's just that I'm going to still do it. And that's, that's the approach I had to take, that I'm going to do it. And I'm so grateful. I'm so incredibly grateful um, that I did and had no idea of the opportunities that were going to, to be there waiting for me. You never know. Like Anne Fullenwider, the editor-in-chief of Mary Claire, I chose this clip because one of her biggest gambles, a very difficult call, turned out to be her best decision, and she walks us through how she made it. What do you think the toughest career decision you've had to make at this point was? Uh, to Definitely to come to editor-in-chief of Mary Claire. Why? Which is so ironic because it's certainly the best job I've ever had and the, the job I felt that I really am meant to do. But um, the timing was terrible. I had been editor-in-chief at Brides for nine months, not even, I mean, seven months when they first called me. And I had put in huge changes. We'd rehired a whole bunch of people. We'd, I'd literally, some of the people i had hired had only been there for a couple of weeks when I ended up giving my notice. Um, so the timing was terrible. And in fact, I actually said no the first time that they asked me. I sort of tossed it over my head. I was like, there's no way I can leave this job. I just got here. I've just like... Imp- engage all these people to come on board for this mission. And I certainly didn't want to leave the company in the lurch. And I just thought, it's just too, the timing's terrible. I can't do it. And also taking on another editor-in-chief role right away after not even a year in the first one is going to just, the stress is going to kill my family. And um, so I said no. And they said, all right. And I think it was like a Thursday or Friday. I went home over the weekend and I just toss it around and talk to my husband, sought some advice from other people. And I ended up calling them back and saying, if you still want me, I really want the job. Because I realized there are only, these are, there's like 12 of these jobs in the country. And 
my, my husband always says, it's like the NFL head coach job. There's only so many, and they're only going to come up once in a while. And I've learned since the timing is, the timing is almost always wrong to have kids, to go on vacation, to make a huge change in your life. There's never going to be like the, the, the clouds part and you have all the things are lined up and everyone's like, welcome to the next big stage of your life. This is exactly <laughs> how you do it. You know, so sometimes you just have to leap. Uh, and so that was definitely the hardest decision and the best decision I've ever made. We met Nicole Ritchie at her offices in L.A., and in this next clip, she discusses a challenge I think that we can all appreciate on some level, feeling like you have to prove yourself, but simultaneously being pressured to do something that in your gut, you just don't see as the right move. When you think about your life, I would imagine that along the way, you have been underestimated. Sure. <laughs> Did you feel that way from a young age? Did that was that something that started when you started getting into the business side of things? Um yeah, I mean there is a certain level always of feeling like you have to prove yourself um and then you get to a point where you know right now I feel like because because this brand is has been around for 9 years these these nine years have been a constant process of letting go of everything that's not authentic to who I am. Um, and that's not easy. And I do feel like I'm now at a place where I can walk into a room with any man in this in this industry and I can have any wholesale meeting and I feel confident in what I'm saying because it's the truth. And nobody can question your inner truth. It's really about sticking to who you are. Mm -hmm. I'm shaking my head in absolute agreement with you. And I also think the way you've described it, there is this progression. And I think it happens for all of us at some point. You start something earlier in life. And of course, there's going to be the uncertainty. And you're going to have the various people, factions telling you what to do. Mm -hmm. And early on, it's hard not to listen to that to some extent. Yes. And sometimes you're going to do things along the way that you're sort of half in, half out. Yes. And then there comes a point where you know you have the vision, you really strongly believe in it, you know it's resonating with people. Where was that turning point for you? Well, building a business is something I had to learn. I am a creative at heart. It needs to mean something to me. So I decided to pull everything back like like a decision to take all of my apparel out of wholesale because I just wanted to speak directly to my customer and that was a decision that I was I was advised for a long time not to do mm -hmm. um but it got to a place where I just it just felt I it was it was pulling at me and it was just something that I wanted to do and I wanted to speak directly to the girl and you know designing is like storytelling and it was really hard for me to ask somebody else to tell my story and to speak to the girl who I felt so badly that I knew. Before we go, I wanted to share this last clip from Architectural Digest Editor-in-Chief Amy Astley. And I like it because it comes from the beginning of Amy's career, how she got hired by Anna Wintour and found her way in the magazine media industry with no connections. Because while most of us, including me, have never met Anna Wintour, I think we can all relate to those early days or any point in any new endeavor where we just don't know anyone and we don't have any connections. 
I started at House and Garden straight out of college. It was five years. It was great training. I love the shelter category. Um, the magazine was closed in 1993 when Mr. Newhouse, who owns the company, bought Architectural Digest. So that is ironic. Um, I was 25, 26 years old. He closed House and Garden um, to focus in on AD, which was then based in L.A. And, you know, I didn't have a job. Um, Somebody on the team, very senior, recommended me to Anna Wintour the same day that the company closed House and Garden, and I was called by HR to come and meet with her that day. And I remember sort of like, ooh, could I come tomorrow and get my outfit together? No, no, no. <laughs> I was no. going to say, Today, what are you wearing? Right now. I was wearing a little Anya's B t-shirt, little black <laughs> cigarette pants, and I had a brand new pair of Chanel ballet slippers on, which cost a week's salary. <laughs> And this was a long time ago. And I remember the day they closed the magazine. I was looking at the Chanel ballet slippers and I was like, oh, my God, I never should have bought these. Now I have no job. And it's like my rent for the month. Can I put them back in the box and take them back? This, you know, the carpet is it's carpeted here. Um, but I ended up having to go to Sienna right then, you know, um, and I think she noticed the slippers. <laughs> They were a good buy. I guess so, you know. Um, and she gave me a copy test, and I, I met her. It was a, it was a surreal day to have the magazine closed and to go and, and meet her the same day, you know. But I was just young enough that I was still kind of clueless, you know. Um, and really my plan was and, – and the person who recommended me was someone senior on the House and Garden staff who I had always sort of tried to assist this man because he had no assistant. And mm. I thought he was he was so talented. Um, his name is Charles Gandhi, and people in the design industry know him. And I sort of idolized him. And I would like, you know, we had Xerox machines at the time. So we had to stand in line. So I'd take his papers and Xerox them for him. I wasn't his official assistant. But I liked him, and I used to just help him out. Um, and I, he thought I was a good kid, mm -hmm. you know? with a good attitude and some talent, and he recommended me to Anna Wintour. So that's why I say to people, don't manage up. Like, he wasn't my boss. I didn't have to help him. I thought he was the bee's knees. Like, I thought he was super cool. And I was like, oh, why does Charles have to stand in line at the Xerox with the likes of me, you know? <laughs> and, you know, I just helped him. You know, yeah. I just do stuff for him, and he appreciated it. And he really did me a huge kindness when I had no job. And Anna obviously said to him, is there anyone young at House and Garden who I might like? And he was like, yeah, you might like Amy. And I was I was Wendy's assistant. And, you know, Wendy was very much from a fashion family. Her sister, Tawny Goodman's worked at um, Vogue for a long time. So it was, you know, the connections were building without me necessarily being born into having any connections. That brings us to the end of our 100th episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new or maybe you heard an episode that you want to go back and take a re-listen to. Awesome. I also hope there are a hundred more plus to come from No Limits going forward. Um, and before we go, again, another thank you to all of you for listening. A thank you to the incredible women who have joined us on the show the awesome entrepreneurs who have shared their stories through our Entrepreneur of the Week, and to our wonderful team here at ABC News who has helped make this happen. I want to give a special shout out to the summer interns, Apoorva Gundetti, Lal Kosdell, and Michael Burke, who did a huge amount of research for us this summer. They were so helpful in so many ways. They helped us redesign our brand new No Limits logo, by the way. Let us know what you think of that. Taylor's shaking her head right now. She's a big fan. So thank you so much to the interns. You guys did an awesome job this summer. We love you. We miss you. It's going to be uh, really tough times ahead without all of your help. And of course, to the awesome team here, 
that is not leaving us that will help us make this happen going forward. Taylor Dunn, our producer, editor Michelle Bancardo, research assistant Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. We will see you for the 101st episode next week. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. 